Welcome to episode 293 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast 
to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand. They're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 293 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, Melanie, how are you? I'm good. So I just checked when this is going to air. I wish I could ask you, how was your Thanksgiving, but it has not happened as of right now. But I am super curious, since this is the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, how do you tackle Thanksgiving with fasting? This year is a good example of it's just the four of us, which I'm super excited about because it's really only the second holiday we've spent in our new home. 
I typically, I don't alter a whole lot, to be honest with you. I, we eat earlier in the day. We usually eat by three or four o'clock. My teenagers will go back for seconds a few hours later, but I am generally not hungry. So I may have like a light meal to break my fast and then really lean into protein and veggies. And that's one of the few times in the year I will enjoy pie. Like I make a really good apple pie. And there's something about even gluten-free crust that I love which is why I don't normally eat pie, but I will allow myself to enjoy and savor every single bite. But yeah, I I don't, you know, I I think that I don't treat Thanksgiving any differently than really any other day because I don't alter the way I eat too much. And it's not to say that I can't, I just don't feel good when I eat certain types of foods. So my kids get a lot of the starchy stuff like stuffing and potatoes. And I'm the one that leans into like Brussels sprouts and other things that we might have alongside. The last couple of years, we've been doing tenderloin and not turkey, but ButcherBox very nicely sent me a lovely turkey. So we will be having some turkey and some tenderloin for Thanksgiving. But it's also the one holiday that my husband gets really into and wants to make everything himself. So like all these women listening that are like, oh my gosh, I wish my husband would do that. He gets a little controlling about his kitchen on Thanksgiving. So I really play an ancillary role on Thanksgiving and I'm completely fine with that because he's a really good cook. But it's sometimes kind of an odd dynamic because I think we're kind of conditioned as a society that it's the woman in the kitchen all day long and Actually, it's my husband like up early for the bird and he's all about making the stuffing. And every year he perfects his stuffing and he makes, this is horrible, Chex Mix. And so Chex Mix is like crack in our house. My husband and my kids will eat it till it is gone. But I jokingly tell them they need a feed bag just to kind of, you know, put the strap on over their back of their neck and just let them eat it all day long. And they could not be happier. So there's a lot of feasting in our house it's usually a pretty relaxed day. How about you? Similar to you, I don't really, I personally don't really adjust much because I mean, doing my one meal a day approach that I do, I literally am feasting already every single day. And for example, it was my birthday this week and a friend came in town and we went to dinner and I got two entrees. It was because I wanted to I couldn't decide. I wanted both steak and fish. So he was like, just get both. And I was like, okay, I'll have like a bite of the steak and eat the fish. But I ate, I ate all of it, <laughs> um, which was fabulous. And that's in addition to like the, the appetizers and all of that. But the point being is I am so accustomed to eating large amounts of meat at night and protein. So on Thanksgiving, nothing really changes much because the foods I want to eat, kind of like what you were saying about you know, the foods that make you feel good and the foods that don't. I would like to eat a lot of other different foods that would also taste good, but they would also make me feel not so well. Or I could eat the foods that taste just as good to me, but make me feel great. So on Thanksgiving, I would still do my one meal a day type thing and just eat a ton of turkey as my meat. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, to me, it's for me personally, this is what my life has evolved into and I'm completely happy in this space. But I do know when we have like family or friends events, people always kind of look at me and they're like, well, you're not going to have this and you're not going to have that. And I'm like, no, because I actually don't feel good when I eat X or Y. And I'm totally fine with you eating X or Y. It's just not what I'm leaning into. And I, I think that it's also like being respectful. Sometimes it can be very triggering when people see you eat a particular way. 
And I always say, there's no, you know, there's no judgment. I just know that I'm in a stage in my life where it's not worth it for me to eat foods that make me feel badly. Like if I were to have a couple glasses of wine, guess what? My sleep's going to be terrible. I'm going to get hot sweats, night sweats, and um, I'm going to wake up in the morning and my aura ring's going to be barking at me. So, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's a cost benefit. Like what makes me feel good? What allows me to wake up on the day after Thanksgiving and whether we're doing a 5K, you know, we try to do things that are active. You know, you're asking kind of like what the prevailing strategy is. Move my body, try to lift, if not on Thanksgiving the day before or the day after, stay really well hydrated, and then, you know, choose the things that you want to splurge on. And typically mine is apple pie. <laughs> it's, I love apple pie. There's something about, like, I love apples in general, but I love, like, I make a really good apple pie. It's very basic, but it's really good. And my kids laugh because I'll stand there at the counter and I'm like, I'm just eating the crust. Like I wouldn't normally eat crust. I'm like, oh, this is good. Yeah. One of the things I really like about fasting though, in general with the holidays, like before fasting, I would have a lot of fear. I mean, I would love the holidays and I would love the food, but I would have a lot of, I guess, dread or concern about overeating and weight gain and overindulging. And it was this weird blend of, you know, the pure excitement and joy of the food and also just kind of dreading the aftermath. And now I I never really experienced that. Like holidays, I just genuinely look forward to the whole food experience with minimal, I mean, really honestly, no negative effects. Yeah. I mean, to me, especially because I have teenagers and I recognize that time is fleeting with them, I've always loved like our nuclear family. And and prior to the pandemic, we always spent holidays with our extended family. And now things have changed a little bit and that's okay. But for me, it's really like the joy of having conversations with my kids because as teenagers, they spend a lot of time connecting with their friends or disconnecting from their parents. And so for me, we kind of get into this discussions of, you know, are we going to do like a Harry Potter marathon? Are we going to do Lord of the Rings, which that usually sends my kids into orbit, you know, trying to find ways that we can connect after eating, you know, are we going to play football or am I going to watch them play football? But just finding things that we can do to connect together that don't per se disconnect us more, because I think it's very easy in our culture to be around other humans, but be so disconnected, like people that are on their phones constantly. And I'm certainly not perfect. I'm not by any means am I suggesting that, but I really try on holidays to be very connected and very present. And that to me is something I'm much more cognizant of now than maybe I was 10 years ago with my kids. Have you ever used one of those phone jail things? Not per se, although the other day, interestingly enough, my 15-year-old who is my more challenging child, I will say, came home from swim team practice. I know his blood sugar was low because he was hangry. He was just really grumpy. And I had asked him to help take the dogs out and I got a rash of reaction to that. And so because he was so disrespectful, I just said, well, you know, I have your phone. And so I had his phone for two days. So yes, we do have phone jail, but said child is pretty clever. And so he found his phone in the midst of phone jail and took it. And so then he got another day added on to not having a phone. So yes, we do institute phone jail, but not per se like at the table. Usually phone jail is when an infraction has been incurred. And I'm trying to think of what will hurt him the most. <laughs> I'm like, what is going to be the most unpleasant punishment I can give him? I'll just take your phone. And he feels like he's lost an appendage. I was going to talk about one other thing, but instead I'll save it for next week. And instead I have to comment on the phone. When I was driving to dinner, 
has your phone's SIM card ever like decided it's not there? Like your phone is like, can't find SIM card. No. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's crazy. So you're, basically your phone loses all capability. Like it can't be a phone. It can't like make calls. It can't find the internet. And so I was driving and I just realized how dependent we are on our phone. Cause I was like all dressed up and like had all my stuff. And I was like halfway to Midtown Atlanta and my phone was not getting the internet. And I was like, I don't know how to find this hotel. Like, I don't know how to get, <laughs> like, I was like, what am I going to do? Like pull off to a gas station and be like, how do I get to Four Seasons? It was crazy. It made me realize just how reliant we are. And then I just felt so useless that I like was not going to be able to navigate somewhere where I had gone before multiple times, you know? I will just interject that my mom lives in a rural part of Maryland on a beautiful lake. And when I was coming back most recently, the way that I come from Western Maryland to get back to Virginia, I have to go through West Virginia for a brief scooch amount of time. Well, I went from having ways to having no ways and then not knowing where I was because I had only gone this route once before. And so at one point I was driving for an hour with no ways, no Wi-Fi, no nothing. Did you feel naked? I felt so naked. I was like, I feel naked. Yeah. I was like contemplating, how do I find a police station and talk to them about the fact that I didn't think to print out directions because why would I have needed them? Yeah. You feel, you, you start to realize how dependent we are on technology for sure. It's the craziest feeling. And I was like, oh, this is what it was like, like back in the day. I bet people were a lot better with keeping appointments because if you don't show up, you know, <laughs> I was like, they're going to think I'm dead. <laughs> like, no, I mean, we used to, I was like explaining to my kids, we used to have MapQuest or we used to have these little Garmin's in our cars and you would update them periodically. And my kids were like, what? And I was like, yes, you had to print things out or write them out. I was like, that's how old school mom and dad are. I still, when I was growing up, had to print out from MapQuest. So good times. I'm glad to know you, you, you recall, you recall that. Quest. I was right on the cusp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we represent many generations on this podcast. Would you like to jump into everything for today? Absolutely. So to start things off, we have some questions actually for questions that we can sort of do rapid fire and they are from Casey. The subject is liquid chlorophyll during the fast, window flexibility, anti-inflammatory foods, and Casey says, I have a few questions shared here. Number one, can I consume liquid chlorophyll in my water while in a fasted state or is this a no-no? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a plant. I, I think it depends on how it's processed because chlorophyll does not taste good. And most chlorophyll that I have used with patients has some sugar, dextrose, et cetera, in it to make it palatable. So in most instances, if you're looking at an ingredient list, it very likely has sweeteners in it. And therefore, I would not recommend that for a clean fast. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I, especially after interviewing, I know you're friends with her, Terry Cochran, who she's wonderful. She wrote a book called, is it Wildatarian? Wildatarian, yep. So I had her on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. You've probably had her on your show as well. I'm guessing. I have twice. Yes. She has fascinating thoughts on chlorophyll supplementation. I searched high and low to find a chlorophyll, like a liquid chlorophyll supplement that didn't have a lot of additives. The closest I could find was it's mostly pure chlorophyll, 
but has has glycerin. It doesn't taste sweet. It tastes very grassy, actually. But to be on the safe side, I would always just kind of have it to open my window. So the chlorophyll itself, not a problem. But like Cynthia said, it's hard to find. Like maybe I should make a chlorophyll. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay, friends. Stay tuned. I do think it's really wonderful. So I would err on the side of keeping it in your eating window unless you can find a pure version, which good luck. It's hard to find and it doesn't taste good. That's actually why oftentimes it is sweetened. I oftentimes will recommend chlorophyll for constipation. Hmm. Nice. Terry recommends it for actually iron levels. Yes. I love Terry. I've had her on the podcast twice and she always brings such a unique lens to looking at health and wellness, like really a unique lens. Like the Cochrane method is her trademarked method. And I've learned so much through her. She's really wonderful because she's the one who talks about the the amyloid formation and conventional agriculture. I bring this up every time I interview somebody in the, I don't know what words to use. Like I just brought it up the other day, um, interviewing the founders of Regenerative Pastures which is kind of like a butcher box system, but they're US based only and they have a lot of really amazing options. But actually that interview was amazing. But like anytime I interview somebody where we're talking about like conventional agriculture versus regenerative and holistic, I bring up Terry's theory, which basically is that the stress levels of the raising conditions create these truncated proteins and conventional meat that has a very inflammatory potential which nobody else is talking about. So I find that very cool. Yeah. And it's, she's not a big fan of chicken and a few other things, but like chicken is, is I think the basis of a lot of people's diets. And by no means am I telling everyone to panic and stop eating chicken, but just to give it some pause. And I think that has a lot to do with her desire to encourage people to eat more wild vegetarian proteins. I, she certainly has had a huge influence on us. We got very creative during the pandemic. She's amazing. Okay. So much for rapid fire. Casey's second question. She has some questions about supplements taken in the fasted state or during the eating window. So we can just go through these. D3, B12, iron. So D3. Yeah. So fat soluble vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, and K, I generally recommend that you take with a meal so that they can kind of slow the absorption. B12, provided that it's clean. I generally, that to me is kind of benign iron. I generally like people to take with food for a variety of reasons, but I understand why people ask these questions because they are trying to simplify their lives. But I would say iron and D3 take in a fed state, B12 or B vitamins, I think are fine, provided that they're clean, take in a non-fed state. What do you think? Agreed. The only caveat I would provide B12, similar to the chlorophyll, it is water soluble, so it can be taken completely fasted, it, but it can also be hard to find versions without the additives. They're usually always flavored. And also with B12, it can be really important, especially given your MTHFR status, to get a properly methylated form. So methylcobalamin version. And then my iron caveat would be, and I, I struggle with iron regulation, like really bad. I just don't seem to make ferritin. I mean, I, I do, but there's just some issue there with my conversion, I think. So I am very in tune with iron supplementation. I personally will use desiccated spleen as well as kidney, which has some iron 
I use ancestral supplements. I do have a code for them. If you go to melanieavalon.com slash ancestral, A-N-C-E-S-T-R-A-L, the code Avalon10 will get you 10% off. So I take their kidney every night. I take their spleen a few times a week and I take that with food. I don't take the spleen every day because I found and researched this and I've talked with my hematologist about it. If you take iron supplements constantly, like trying to up your iron level, your iron actually has an iron regulation system where it downregulates its absorption if you're taking in a lot consistently. On the contrary, if you're not taking in a lot, it will upregulate its iron absorption. So it can be nice to do like a uh, like a punctuated approach. Another option is chelated iron because iron can be very it can be constipating. So I, I love L Russ. I'm actually having her on my show for the third time coming up soon. And I was just recently on her show, the L Russ show. She is very in tune with iron supplementation because it can really relate to thyroid issues. And she's a big big fan of chelated iron by Blue Bonnet, and that has to be taken on an empty stomach and. The reviews for that are very, very positive for people saying they are able to raise their iron and don't get constipated. So that's another option, but that would be on an empty stomach. Yeah, the chelated iron is really key. I I think for many years I was on chelated iron and there's nothing worse than being put on iron. And then if you're not constipated, then all of a sudden you can't go to the bathroom. So chelated iron tends to be much easier on the gut. And I would agree with you that Anemia in general and low ferritin levels, low iron levels can be very confounding and it's not at all uncommon for women really at any stage of life to have issues surrounding this. So a commonly recommended supplement. Yeah. The the iron issues are, they're one of the banes of my existence. I'm really excited actually because I'm going to be interviewing Morley Robbins for his book, Cure Your Fatigue the root cause and how to fix it on your own. And apparently it's mostly about iron regulation. So I'm excited to see what I learn about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Your podcast about glutathione came out today and I was like, Ooh, (laughs) I'm knee deep in, in like podcast prep for two podcasts next week. But I was like, I really need to listen to that. Oh, it's so good. I was on the fence about glutathione IVs and glutathione pushes. Now I'm fairly convinced they're a waste. It's just in and out of your body and it doesn't even get absorbed really. So it was for a doctor. Uh, I don't know if he's a doctor. I think he's just a researcher and a pharmacist, not just, but I think he's a researcher and a pharmacist. He wrote a book called The Glutathione Revolution. He does have his own proprietary topical glutathione where they have studies showing how it is absorbed in the half-life in the body. I've been using that every single day and night since reading the book and interviewing him, I'm sold. I think glutathione is so important. So supporting it naturally. And then if you supplement using his version, I feel like I'm just giving all the codes, but (laughs) his version that I've been using is melanieavalon.com slash aura, A-U-R-O is his brand. And then the code melanieavalon should get you a discount. Yeah. It's interesting because Terry Cochran's not a fan of IV pushes or IV glutathione drips. So that's definitely as we keep plugging Terry Cochran, that's definitely really aligned with my conversations I've had with her, but I'll, I'll definitely have to dive into that podcast. Let me know what you think. And I think I wanted to believe it because you know you want to think, oh, I can get some glutathione IVs or pushes and do some good, but it's really just, like I said, in and out. And then I, after reading it, I reached out to my friend, James Clement, who 
he wrote a book called The Switch and he's a dear friend and I really, really respect him. And I, I really feel like I can always get a very unbiased perspective because I mean, he does have a book, but he's not selling anything. He, he runs a lab that studies longevity. I asked him and he's like, yeah, there's no point in taking glutathione. It was when I was actually <laughs> feeling really sick and I was like texting him. I was like, what do I do? Like, should I get NAD? I was like, I'm going to get glutathione. He's like, don't get the glutathione. Like it's not, it's not going to help. So tangents. Okay. And then another question from Casey. She said she's considering a window of 12 to eight o'clock, but she feels on a Saturday or weekend that she might need more flexibility due to long runs or social engagements. Do you have recommendations on timing to make the weekends work? One of the key aspects of intermittent fasting is flexibility. So I would really encourage you to experiment. Maybe you're going to have a wider feeding window on a weekend. Maybe you'll have a shorter fasting window on a weekend. I, I think that the key is really kind of leaning into what what makes the most sense for you. I know that pre-pandemic, I definitely was much more flexible on the weekends because we were oftentimes going out or had events and I couldn't per se you know, time when I was eating or when I wasn't eating, it was oftentimes dependent on other people's schedules. So I would say experiment to see what feels good. You know, maybe if you're doing longer runs, you're going to want to break your fast earlier. Maybe if you're, you know, going out to dinner, you are going to have a wider feeding window and that's completely fine. And, and I do encourage people to change up what they're doing. Our bodies get very accustomed to eating the same foods, having the same fasting windows. And so I do like variety. So how about you? Do you have any different ways of doing things on the weekend? Well, first of all, I love your answer. And that's the answer I was basically going to suggest, which is just, I think it's actually, especially if you have like a regimented window during the week, it's a great time to have some flexibility and actually, like you said, change things up, keep your body guessing. Well, I do a completely different window. If I was doing her window, I probably would adjust it a little bit where I might just open it a little bit later and keep it open later, you know, assuming that you're having, you know, social engagements at night, dinners, things like that. For me personally, I really honestly do the same window every single night. <laughs> like I don't I don't need to adjust because it it literally fits, I mean, it's almost every situation. The only time it wouldn't fit would be if I had to go to an early dinner and then honestly, I probably just wouldn't eat. If there's one thing I won't do, I don't eat if I'm not hungry. Like I just I don't eat just to be social. Like I don't enjoy it. So if that's the case, I usually would just drink <laughs> and then eat later. Which interestingly, another tangent, this might be controversial, but they'll often say to have alcohol with food to slow the absorption and have a better effect on your body. I find the only time I'm really drinking with food is when I am having a dinner out because normally I drink before eating. And I find that I do a lot better that way, drinking before, because I feel like my body processes the alcohol completely and then it's not impeding or competing with the dinner. And I find when I have wine with food, I feel like the alcohol lasts longer in my system. So just a random thought. Yeah. I, I'm definitely one of those people that I had to drink with food, because if I didn't, I would feel the effects pretty strongly. <laughs> and so I would be the person that would be like, uh-oh, I, I don't feel so great. Actually, maybe that's why I like it more because not because I like feeling crazy. I can drink less and have the drinking experience compared to if I'm having it with food, I would maybe drink more. You know, what's interesting is that I always, 
assumed that because I was the type of person, like I, I could never really drink a lot was, is it my, what's unique about my body? I don't make enough alcohol dehydrogenase to like break this down properly or is my detoxification or my detoxification pathways just not optimized? I mean, those are the things I, I used to spend time thinking about. Because <laughs> I've done my genetic data and one of the systems that I ran it through, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but I don't know if I've said it when I was with you. It basically looked at your, oh, I think it was the self-decode report. It was the food one and it showed you like all these different food options, like carbs. I don't know. There was like four food related things and there was alcohol. I was bad with everything food related and great with alcohol. Like alcohol was like green and then everything else food related was like red, red, red. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I did do genetic testing over the summer with Christina Hess and that's an area of nutrigenomics. That's her area of expertise Things that were consistent and validating were things like, do you like lean meat or fatty meat? I was like, oh, lean meat all the way. I don't feel good when I eat fatty meat. And we were kind of going through the report and she was like, I can see where that is. I can see where you're very athletic. I can see that you know, you're know, you someone that actually would tolerate a little bit of dairy. You can actually tolerate a little bit of alcohol. And I was like, that's interesting because it hasn't been my own experience, but you know, we, we can't consider the fact that, or we need to consider why bioindividuality is such an important aspect of whether we're, because we're leading into this next question, talking about inflammatory foods, for each one of us, it could look very different. And I know, I don't think I ever perceived that foods I no longer consume now were bothersome even 15 or 20 years ago. And so just kind of understanding that there's the genetics piece plus exposure piece, and they can all play a role in how we feel when we eat certain foods. Oh, yeah, I think that's so key. And speaking to that, it's so interesting when you do pay more attention and quote, clean up what you're eating, how you do notice, like I will eat, well, I don't really eat foods that bother me now, but if I were to, I really notice. And I just look back at my old self and I think about everything that I was eating and how I didn't even notice because I think it was just kind of like a, an overall systemic inflammation. So you didn't really pick up on any one signal from food. So, but yeah, so Casey's last question, which you hinted at, she says, what are some of your top anti-inflammatory foods? What are the foods you would recommend avoiding that are most inflammatory? You know, when I think about top anti-inflammatory foods, I really think about phytonutrient dense foods. So when you hear the term eat the rainbow, I think about, you know, green leafy vegetables. I think about, Berries, especially blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. I think a great deal about medicinal mushrooms. And no, I'm not talking about mushrooms that are psychedelic. I think about curcumin. I think about, you know, which is a component of turmeric. I think a great deal about polyphenols that you get in green tea and bitter teas and and black coffee, preferably mold-free. The most inflammatory foods in my estimation are seed oils and highly processed, hyperpalatable foods, gluten, dairy, in particular people that are susceptible to that, sometimes grains, processed sugars, alcohol, soy. So it really depends. Like Just like Melanie was saying, she feels differently when she has alcohol in an empty stomach versus in a fed state. Bioindividuality, but seed oils are the most inflammatory foods worth eliminating if you do nothing else. Read labels, ask when you go to restaurants. I think seed oils are the most damaging and down to a cellular level, the most damaging 
food-like substances that most of us consume unknowingly in many ways. How about you? Yeah, we have very similar lists. So actually my big one for anti-inflammatory isn't so much a specific food as it is an approach to the amino acid profiles of foods. So in particular, because there's nine essential amino acids and some of those are more growth promoting and can be inflammatory in high amounts, particularly things like methionine, which is really high in muscle meats compared to quote, more anti-inflammatory amino acids, things like glycine. So fish, for example, tends to be a more quote, and I'm using quotes because inflammation itself is so complicated and nuanced. And in a way, it's hard to really deconstruct what is inflammatory and what's anti-inflammatory. But in general, the amino acid profile of fish tends to be a more anti-inflammatory amino acid profile than something like muscle meat. And then the amino acid profile of more gelatinous cuts of like red meat tend to be more anti-inflammatory. So that is actually a large reason that I make shellfish and fish basically the foundation of my protein for that reason. I found, I read, and (laughs) it's the reason I eat so many scallops is because I read this... I read this one study that looked at the inflammatory potential. I think it looked at like liver enzymes or the effect on the liver in particular. And it looked at chicken, cod, which is fish, scallops, and then one more. And I'll have to find this study and put it in, this, in the show notes. But the effect of scallops, like the anti-inflammatory potential was insane. After I read that, I was like, I'm eating scallops like all the time. You want to know it's one of the few foods my husband hates. So like I I can only really eat scallops when I'm in restaurants because he dislikes them that much, but I actually really enjoy them. Oh, I love, I love scallops as you guys know. So yeah, I mean, having like scallops, for example, would be a pretty anti-inflammatory protein. And then it's not just the amino acids as a benefit of fish, also the omega-3, omega-6 ratio. And this is another thing where it's not so much like take omega-3 because it's anti-inflammatory. I think what's more important is the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 because we need both. And we just want the ratio to be more in favor of the omega-3 side. So hunter-gatherers, I've seen different amounts, but they say hunter-gatherers ate omega-3 to omega-6 ratio of between like one to one to I think between four to one, which, sorry, omega-3 to omega-6. Yes, four to one, or wait, would be the other, other way around, probably the other way around. In any case, today, the ratio tends to be, I mean, I think it can be like 20 or 30 to one. It's crazy. And again, a lot of people will go the route of like, oh, well, high dose the fish oil, eat all the salmon. I think it's more about the ratio. I don't think we necessarily need a huge amount of these omega-3s and omega-6s in our diets, but we want that ratio to be more anti-inflammatory than inflammatory. Although if you want a really nuanced conversation on this, which is going to add a lot of caveats, listen to my interview with Chris Masterjohn because we dive deep into this. And he actually has a much more complicated view, which contradicts a little bit about what I said, but it still stands that the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio I think is important. So then on top of that, some things that Cynthia mentioned, a lot of spices can be really anti-inflammatory. She mentioned curcumin. So that's found in turmeric. I eat so much turmeric every single night. I eat a lot of ginger. I love ginger. I love ginger. I love turmeric and ginger. Like They are the two quote spices because I know ginger is a root. I just gravitate towards them like none other. And then they always come up in the list of like the go-to anti-inflammatory spices. So I, I high dose 
I mean, I like high dose those, ate a lot of that. Everybody knows I went through my pineapple phase. Pineapple can be really anti-inflammatory because of the bromelain, which is a proteolytic enzyme that breaks down proteins. Kind of like serapeptase, except serapeptase, you're taking in a fasted state and you know pineapple is a food and can help with digesting your food. The main reason I want to get back to pineapple and the reason I haven't is for some reason, intuitively, it just feels too sweet to me now. But when I was eating that, the reductions in inflammation I just saw personally in myself were amazing. And then for the inflammatory side of things, trans fats, yes, they've been banned, but they are still there. Seed oils, that's what I had written down for sure. Like Cynthia was saying, I do think that is huge, especially the the processed ones, the refined seed oils, and they're just rampant. I think Kate Shanahan, her book, The Fat Burn Fix, talks a lot about this. And she has, there's like the three S's. So canola, corn, cottonseed, safflower, soy, sesame? Sunflower. Sunflower, sunflower. Yeah. So definitely looking for those. Gluten, I think, can be very inflammatory for a lot of people. Those were the three main ones I wrote down. And then just in general, I think... The most inflammatory thing, well, processed foods, <laughs> just processed foods, and then just eating too much. Like the energy toxicity of overindulging can have a very inflammatory effect compared to a calorie restricted diet or fasting, which ultimately tends to create calorie restriction or allows for that fasting time can be anti inflammatory. But the eating process is inflammatory just by its nature. It's all good. Shall we go on to Bruce's question? Yes, this is subject. Thanks for all you do. I recently listened to all of the episodes on your podcast, and I would like to thank the both of you for your dedicated work. I'm wondering if you've seen anything on sauna sessions and fasting. I have a sauna that I built a few years ago and use it four times a week. I have recently started using the red lights that are part of the lighting system that came with the heater control package because of Melanie saying red lights were beneficial. Love, Bruce. I cannot think of a more Melanie-esque appropriate question. Bruce, thank you so much for your question. So I do love the red lights. So I'm glad you're on that board as well as the, the sauna. So I Googled sauna and fasting and I didn't really find any studies per se, but I can speak to my personal experience. And I found a very wonderful blog post written by Seamland, who I've had on my show twice. Me too. He's awesome. He's wonderful. Although I was thinking, I feel like he hasn't been posting. I feel like I haven't seen much from him recently. Yeah, he's been quieter. I don't know. He might be writing a book. He's always, he's like a proliferative writer. He's just so smart. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have, so it's one of those things like for me, I, I really am oftentimes fascinated slash humbled when people that don't have traditional like research or medical training are just able to grasp such complicated concepts, much like you, Melanie, can grasp such complicated subjects and really understand it at a level that even for myself, sometimes I'm like, wow, I had never thought about that. So he's one of those, you know, young protégés of the science community. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. And and yeah, he's very, like, he's younger than me. I think he's like 25. <laughs> he's a young buck. I was thinking maybe just because he was so young, maybe he, maybe he had some life development just career-wise. No, I think he's just smart and curious. And I think that has served him well. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, he's amazing. So I found a blog post by him called Why Combine Sauna and Fasting. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I will give you the takeaways from that blog post. So this is all the work of Seamland, not myself, but he makes the case that both sauna and fasting have a lot of similar benefits as far as like anti-aging and, and longevity and supporting the immune system. And sauna has some benefits that fasting does not automatically provide. So for example, the cardiovascular workout equivalent of a sauna session, you're not going to get that from fasting. And then on the flip side, I guess you could say there are things that fasting would provide that sauna wouldn't necessarily. But he says that they work really well symbiotically for something that, you know, I would have never come up with this. And I don't, yeah, I don't think I would have ever come up with this. But he talks about the importance of autophagy in both fasting and sauna. So both sauna sessions and fasting instigate autophagy, which is basically a cellular cleanup process in the body. It's really linked to longevity, anti-aging, disease prevention, so many things. And what's interesting is one of the main benefits of sauna comes from heat shock proteins that are activated when you do a sauna session. And there are some studies on heat shock proteins in rodents, and they found that the autophagy process is actually required to experience the benefit from the heat shot proteins. And the autophagy in part possibly mitigates some of the actual like stress or the detrimental effects of heat shock proteins. So it's possible that by really ramping up your autophagy, which would happen with a fasted state, that you will get more benefits from the sauna and you'll get a more use that word anti-inflammatory response, you're going to get the benefits either way. And it's not something to be worried about, but basically the fasting during the sauna session, he said it's basically like better quality control. And when your body is doing that cleanup process and in activation with the heat shock proteins, keeping the healthy cells and getting rid of the, the negative cells. And then something else, I actually did think about this. He mentioned this, but I, I think I would have thought about this too. He talks about how both fasting and sauna increase human growth hormone. And so he thinks doing sauna while fasting can, you know, further increase that human growth hormone and kind of mitigate any potential catabolic effects of fasting. And the reason I think I would have thought about that was because I interviewed Wendy Myers recently. She pointed out something in her book that blew my mind. I read it. I don't know if I mentioned this on the show already. I read it. I was like, oh, that can't be. I was like, because somebody would have told me that. I actually didn't believe it. And then I went to find the study and it's true. Did you know in order to release human growth hormone from exercise, it's from the heat created from the exercise? Like it requires the heat. Interesting. I guess that's why it's important to sweat, you know, raise that core temperature. Yeah. That blew my mind. I was like, no, like surely exercise releases human growth hormone by some other mechanism, but no, it actually requires heat. So if you're like working out and you never raise your core body temperature, you actually might not be getting some of the benefits. It's interesting because I, I took a, so I, I do Pilates every week and this morning it was a different type of format of Pilates and it's not my favorite. And I was laughing with the instructor who I love. I just kind of take her classes because she really challenges me. And I was laughing and saying, okay, it takes me about five minutes of doing Pilates or lifting or whatever I'm doing to warm up enough that I take off whatever shirt I have on. And I was saying to her, what we were doing this morning was so much more intense that within like two minutes, 
I was sweating. And so I think it makes sense. I mean, you have to exert yourself hard enough because we're really looking for some degree of hormesis. Like we want like a beneficial stressor to the body. So that would make sense. Although I don't think I've per se had thought about it that way before. Yeah, really blew my mind. But yeah, that word hormesis, I think basically the case that Seamland makes with the sauna is that you will get a more beneficial hormetic response from sauna use if you're fasting during it. And then I just know for me personally that, I mean, you could not pay me to like go in a sauna on a, like with food in me. Like that just feels, that experience feels very unpleasant because there's something about like the detox and the sweating and letting it all out, like to be digesting food and to have all of that in you at the same time would just feel like, like it would feel like it would just not feel good. And so I do have a sauna recommendation if people would like a recommendation. So I personally use the Sunlighten solo unit every single night of my life. I cannot even express my obsession with this creation. So I would love to have a cabin unit, which Sunlighten also makes cabin units, but I live in an apartment. Like (laughs) that's not going to happen. And um, their solo unit is this really cool contraption that you actually lay down inside of. It's kind of like, I don't want to say a coffin. It's a dome. It does not look like a coffin. (laughs) It does not. It looks like I don't even know how to describe it. And it lights up. It has chromotherapy lights. And what's really wonderful about it, especially for me, is your head is outside of it. So I attach, I've come up with this whole, you can get um, like one of those bendy arms that holds your phone. And I attach that to, because I, I put the solo unit on top of a twin frame, metal frame from Amazon that I got. So I can put a link to that in the show notes. I attach an arm and then it holds my phone over me so I can lay in there. My head is out of it and I can read my books and do my research and do emails. And it's just the most wonderful experience. They also have their products tested for EMF, which is amazing. So I recommend that solo unit. I also recommend obviously their cabin units if you do have the space for that as well. So if you tell them I sent you, they will give you a really good discount. That's at Sunlighten. But Cynthia, do you have a sauna? We do not yet. And that has something to do with the fact that we are putting a pool in next year and we're going to create an exterior structure. And I am envisioning that the exterior structure will have our infrared sauna in it, as opposed to it would have to reside in our garage, even though the sunlight and people have assured me it's completely fine. The area of the country I live in is very humid in the summer. And so the thought of being in a steamy garage uh, with an infrared sauna is not really of interest to me. So right now I have a sauna blanket and yes, you know, I'm working with the fact this is a temporary solution by higher dose. And so it's a sauna blanket that you get inside of and you sweat like crazy. And then I get on my PMF mat and I'm just so happy. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy the PMF mat. Like I fall asleep on it. It's so relaxing. There's different settings. I have no affiliation with higher dose. I just recommend that mat to like everyone. But if you are space constrained, Sunlight makes apartment and small space appropriate options as well as higher dose. And, you know, coming from a very large house that we had in Northern Virginia with a very large basement to a slightly a smaller house with no basement has meant that we've had to get very creative. So when that exterior structure is created, I'm excited because it's going to have like a little gym area inside that I can work out in. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked, what are my favorite 
quote, biohacking products. And something I truly, honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. Blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. Bond Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. Very exciting. Yeah. I can't wait for you to get that. The experience that you were sharing about, you know, just how good the PEMF makes you feel. That's the way I feel after my my sauna session each night. And I think it's important to find things that make you feel good. Like for me, I fell asleep on it every night this week and I was like, okay, I cannot fall asleep on it because then I can't fall asleep at my normal time. So now I have to do shorter episodes because you can change the settings and certain settings are impacting you you more for like relaxation and pre-sleep mode versus stimulating. And there's nothing better than like lying on this warm mat. It's just glorious. Makes me feel so good. It's amazing. All right. Shall we answer one more question? Sure. So we have one last question. This is from Justine. And Justine says, hi guys, love the podcast. I've been listening at work and I feel like I've learned a lot already. I'm relatively new to intermittent fasting, but I've had a good experience and results so far. You've talked previously about the signs you feel when you are in ketosis, metallic taste in the mouth, increased or different energy. Could you go over the signs to look for? As a new intermittent faster, I am anxiously awaiting a sign that I am in ketosis, but I'm not sure what to look for. Thanks from Ottawa, Canada. Well, Justine, welcome to the intermittent fasting world. Typically, when patients or clients are asking these kinds of questions, we're really looking for signs of metabolic flexibility if we're able to effectively utilize 
you know, stored fats or glucose or, you know, create ketones. And so I think about being able to go longer in between meals. So if you can go four to five hours in between meals and have good amounts of energy, you're not having energy slumps after eating, you are able to regulate your weight. You know, part of metabolic flexibility is having the ability to, you know, lose weight more effectively. But I think about the the brain cognition piece being a big one. If you're able to effectively create ketones and specific ones can diffuse across the blood brain barrier. So mental clarity, energy, you know, energy sustained from meal to meal, not getting hangry, effectively being able to lose weight. Those are probably the big ones that I think about. What about you, Melanie? Yeah. So those are really good for the the signs. I guess the only thing I would add is as far as if you actually wanted to confirm or measure, and we've talked about this at length multiple times on the show, but just to briefly go through it, you can measure ketones. There are caveats and nuances to all of it. If you're brand new to intermittent fasting, urine keto strips can be great because you will likely see that shift when you actually start generating ketones and a large portion of those ketones, your body doesn't know how to use them in the beginning. So it like gets rid of a lot of them through your urine. The issue with urine sticks ongoing is that as your body becomes more used to using ketones, you don't excrete as many through the urine. So it's not a really good long-term way to monitor ketosis. Or you can also monitor blood and breath. So monitoring your blood, there also can be a little bit of that effect where you might see more in the beginning. And then as you become better at using it, you might see lower levels on your blood ketone meter. That said, you should always see them. You're not going to be in ketosis and not see ketones on your blood ketone meter. So that can be a good thing to monitor. I really like Ketomojo's brand of their ketone meter. And then you can also measure the breath. So the breath is also a byproduct of when we burn ketones. And interestingly, Dom D'Agostino has talked about this. He's made the case that breath ketones are likely more a product of when you're actually burning fat compared to like dietary fat, which I thought was pretty cool just because of the whole metabolic process and what would create those breath ketones. So you can get a biosense meter for that if you want to measure breath ketones. And I do have a code. So you can actually join my Facebook group that's a long name, Lumen, Biosense, and CGMs, Carbs, Fat, Ketones, and Blood Sugar, and then in parentheses, Melanie Avalon. Basically, if you type in Melanie Avalon Facebook group, I have three groups and this one will come up. So you can get $20 off of Biosense if you go to melanieavalon.com slash Biosense and use the coupon Avalon20. What are your thoughts, Cynthia, on measuring all of these different ketone options? Yeah, I think they're nice. I mean, certainly, you know, Dr. Anna Kabeca talks a lot about urine ketones and and when you're new to being in ketosis, that can be valuable, but those kinds of things kind of add up. So that's why I, I typically start with these are the signs and then they can, you can get further validation. I do like Keto Mojo. I really, really enjoy the owners. I think that they're delightful and they're really trying to help change the narrative especially about insulin resistance and and diabetes and just making people more aware of the net impact of food choices and lifestyle on our blood sugar. So I I think those are certainly really great options. I'm not as familiar as with Biosense, but 
Obviously, I know that you've done your due diligence, but I think the devices to me are, are secondary to actually, you know, getting to a point where you start recognizing the signs that demonstrate that you're becoming more metabolically flexible. And just remember, it's a very small percentage of the population here in the United States right now. It's about seven to eight percent are metabolically flexible. So really important for everyone to kind of lean into that. Yes. I agree. I think that's so, so important. It's a fine line. I just wish everybody could have the full knowledge of ketones before engaging with these devices so that they have the healthiest relationship with the device and what they're learning from it. I totally agree. Yeah. Because you don't want it to be something that is a hurdle to something that you're doing that's good in your body because you feel like you're not creating enough ketones or, you know, I think it can just become an issue. So I um, I actually never measure my ketones ever. And we actually have a question that we didn't get to today about, maybe we'll get to it next week, about our diets and if we're getting into ketosis or not. And I'll say this again when I answer that question, but I I might not be, I don't know, I might not be getting into ketosis. You can burn fat without getting into ketosis. Surprise. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can get all the stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. Although I, I have it on my to-do list. I really need to get that page updated. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, just looking forward to our next recording. And and I promise that our our first question won't take quite so long. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was lots of questions, so. It was very nuanced, but all good information that I think is applicable to most people that are listening. Yep. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.